This is an ABC podcast. Oh, well, the first subterranean animal was a, a blind cave salamander called them an olm. And they have records of people finding them, I think probably in medieval times. They'd wash up through where springs come out on the surface and they'd, they'd wash out and people thought they were baby dragons. So there's all these interesting mythologies around those kinds of animals. I think even so Steiger fauna comes from the word sticks, the river sticks, which is, you know, the underground river that the, the ferryman would take people to, to Hades. So the whole thing has really interesting mythology around it, the whole field. Off Track is your gateway to the natural world of this place that we call Australia. And in today's episode, I'm joined by two women who spend much of their time thinking about things that might as well live on another planet. I'm Ann Jones, and welcome to the underground. My name is Perry Beasley Hall. I'm currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Adelaide, and I'm really passionate about science communication, getting people excited about entomology, and specifically researching insects that live in caves and underground environments. And one of the cave systems that Perry has been interested in is the World Heritage listed Narracourt Caves, situated between the ancestral lands of the Potterwich people to the north, the Jardwajali people to the east. Buendik people to the south and the Mian people to the west. The Narakor Caves are a limestone cast system, which means that the uh, rock in the caves is extremely porous. And a lot of the time when you're walking in those caves, you'll move from almost complete darkness to seeing shafts of light come through above you, a little bit like a cheese grater because the uh, rain has actually worn away at the rock. So one of the reasons that Narracourt is really famous is that there are fossil deposits of megafauna there that have actually fallen in and then died and been preserved. And they've fallen in because of these holes that have formed in the rock and then become sealed up again by the formation of limestone. So it's a really amazing location. So the caves are wonderfully still and quiet. They tend to be room temperature pretty much all year round. But depending on the caves you're in, some of them can be big enough to, you know, house multiple people standing on each other's shoulders. They can be quite cavernous and beautiful. Others are very, very small tight spaces that either we can't access at the moment or they require really professional cavers to actually crawl on their bellies into it. I've been in several of those systems that are uh, quite claustrophobic, even, even in my own experience. And within this epic set of 800,000-year-old caves, among the fossils, the tourists, there are cave crickets, which are completely different to any cricket you've probably come across in your backyard, unless you're really lucky. A lot of people will mistake them for spiders or some other kind of creepy crawly. Um, these crickets differ from what we might associate with, say, the garden cricket, which is the sort of uh, animal you would hear chirping outside your window. These crickets, they've lost the ability to make sound because they don't have wings that they can use as, if you imagine, I suppose, uh, the, the bow of a, of a violin. Um, normally crickets will uh, rub part of their wings against their bodies to make that chirping noise. but because these animals have been in caves for such a long time, they've actually lost their wings completely and they just walk around entirely by hopping or walking on the ground as opposed to flying anywhere. 
These crickets need to get around in environments that are very different from what other insects might be accustomed to. They need to move around in an environment where there's no light, so they can't see any prey or food that they're walking towards. And it's also an environment that basically has no food. Caves tend to be very sparse when it comes to nutrients. So these insects need to be really good at moving around quickly and sensing the environment around them in complete darkness. So these crickets tend to have very elongated appendages, very, very long antennae, uh, very elongated hind legs for jumping and moving around quickly. So even though, yes, they are crickets, I think to the average person, they would probably appear a little bit more like a spindly spider. Yeah, especially when you're in a cave and everything looks like a spider. Exactly, yes. And how big are they? If you kind of stick out your thumb in front of you, um, they might be maybe the length of your thumb, um, just their bodies. They can be quite large when you take into account all of their spindly appendages. Wow. So it sounds like they're, they're actually quite meaty as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So that meatiness is really important for cave environments because it allows cave crickets to actually sustain the food chain uh, in these environments that would otherwise have almost no nutrients. So cave crickets in a lot of environments are what we would call keystone species, and that means that they're essential to the maintenance of those environments. The cave crickets are unique in that they actually leave the cave systems to forage for food outside and then they'll bring energy back into these systems as opposed to most cave animals like say um, spiders or pseudoscorpions that will stay in the one spot and basically not really replenish this food chain. So in bringing these nutrients from the outside world back into the cave, these cave crickets then act as a really important part of the food chain by supplying other animals with, for example, their bodies or their waste. And that allows energy to continue to flow in these environments. Wow, so they're sort of like delivery drivers. <laughs> they go out and exactly. eat their own food and, and bring back that waste back into the cave system for other species to, to feast on or, what, or whatever. That's right. What sort of things would they be trying to eat? Just about anything, really. Um, these crickets have actually been documented as being cannibals in some cases because there's just no food around them and they, they need to get these nutrients wherever they can. It's been documented in a few locations that crickets will actually chew off their own legs if they need to and presumably then regrow them. But it's a hard life out there for these crickets. They, they don't have really clear access to any food at any one time, so they can get pretty desperate. Do they have eyes? Yes, they do. Um, although they're much reduced than we would imagine, um, say, a garden cricket or another insect. Um, if we think of the way moles have very reduced eyes, these crickets have undergone similar evolutionary processes. Right. So they do have some visual sense when they go out hunting. Is that how they find their food or are they using other senses? Um, it hasn't really been studied much. So cave crickets, at least in Australia here, don't have an expert that's existed on them um, for about 50 years. And so we know a lot about their activity rhythms in terms of when they leave the caves, when they come back inside, just from preliminary observations done on a kind of natural history level. But we really don't know much about how they sense their food, how they smell, for example. It might be the case that they're using their very long antennae to find suitable food sources. But they certainly do use their eyes on some level because they'll leave the caves at dawn and dusk. So we're assuming that if there's some light around, they're probably making use of that to find food. Hmm. I just get the feeling that if I was a cave cricket, I would do a little jump and probably hit my noggin on something. Like, <laughs> how do they find each other, in particular if they're trying to find a mate? 
Mm, that's something we wish we knew as well. Um, so because these animals tend to hang around in, in kind of clumps, I suppose, on the walls, and you can also imagine why people might mistake them for spiders if they see a, a large kind of mass of spindly insects. Um, I think at this stage, we tend to assume that they will just um, bump into each other because they tend to live in these groups. But really, we don't understand much about the behaviour of these animals, and that could be contributing to the declines. Do they have a defence mechanism that they use if something approaches them with a view to eating them? Uh, unfortunately, they don't, as far as I know. These crickets are really, really uh, vulnerable to predation by other animals, which is part of the reason why they're so important in this food chain, uh, particularly bats. So we tend to observe that if there is a cave full of bats, that tends to completely exclude any cave crickets occurring and vice versa. Um, so they're actually pretty defenceless, despite the fact that they're in this environment that really has very little food in it. And it leaves them <laughs> ripe, I suppose, for the picking by, by large animals that might decide to eat them. Well, they would have challenges to collect insects like this to actually study them. So how do you go about studying an insect like that? Yeah, sure. So I mentioned that they were skittish and they kind of run away in the face of, of human interaction, but they do tend to generally stay in the same spot. And when I first started, started studying these animals, I assumed that they would, you know, um, just decide to jump away and potentially all over me if I decided to collect them. But um, because of this lack of defence mechanism that they have, we tend to just pick them up and put them in Tupperware containers. <laughs> um, so I feel a little bit sorry for them, given that they're living in such a difficult environment as it is, um, but it makes them very easy to collect on our own, thankfully. Is it known at the moment what the tally of species in Australia of, of cave crickets is? We know that there are about 23 species described at this stage, but they've also been around 10 undescribed since the 1970s. And so that gives you really a window into um, just how much of these animals we really might not understand. I think that it's very likely that we have dozens and dozens of undescribed species that people just haven't been able to study. It, it's just completely ironic, isn't it? Especially because it's thought that these are a keystone species, some uh, an animal that is making a large difference to its local environment. Absolutely, uh, especially because we assume that these animals are also at further risk due to current predictions under climate change. They live in extremely stable thermal environments and if there are any temperature fluctuations in these caves, for example, then we have no idea what impact that might have on these populations. And if they die out, then the cave systems themselves might actually start to degrade. In what way would the cave systems potentially degrade? Well, something that we've been observing at the Narracot Caves, for instance, is that when you have a decline of crickets, you also tend to see, for example, bacterial growth on the cave walls. And whether that's because the crickets are controlling that bacterial growth, for instance, uh, we're not sure. But it certainly means that that could really throw the food chain out of uh, equilibrium in those environments. And we might start to see things like this sort of growth that actually is thought to eat away at the walls of caves. So they could quite literally um, begin to degrade if the food chain is really thrown out of whack in this respect. The complexity is just astounding, isn't it? And there's still so much to know about these underground creatures. So, moving from crickets to something entirely different, sprickets. And our guide as we go even deeper underground is Kim. 
So my name is Dr Kim Abrams and I currently work at the Department of Water and Environmental Regulation and I'm also a research associate at the Western Australian Museum. And Kim is a little bit in love with underground critters, really, really tiny ones, which live in places that, compared to my reality at least, could basically be from Mars. I think of it a bit like the deep sea because it's very difficult to get to. You can't see it. Very few people get to really experience it. So the animals, they look different, so different to what we normally see on the surface. Lots of them have been around for millions of years and we've only started learning about them in recent times. So it really is like exploring a whole different, almost like a fantasy world, really. And one of the types of creatures that Kim is studying are called schizomids. And I cannot tell you how much I had to practice to say that correctly. And because the name is so difficult, we started calling them sprickets, which is a much easier word to say. And it's a combination of the fact that they look a bit like a a cricket crossed with a spider. But they're not either of those things. They're an arachnid, which means they are, they're not spiders, but they're related to things like spiders and scorpions, but distantly. So they have the big back legs like a cricket, but they have also an extended pair of legs in the front that are called antennae form, and that's because they're elongated and they're sensory. So they use that to um, understand their environment, figure out where their prey is and where their mates are. Because they're used to living in these underground environments, They don't have eyesight to rely on, so they've developed these extrasensory legs instead, which makes them very interesting because when they're moving around in their habitat, they're just tapping along, trying to figure out where they are. They almost work like the antenna might on other um, small critters almost, except they're not taking in chemical signals, are they? They're like literally feeling the way. Well, we think they probably are taking in chemical signals too. They've got fine hairs on them, so they probably are physical senses and potentially chemical senses too. Wow. Imagine, like, walking on your nose. That's right. (laughs) It's like, yes, using your nose to figure out every step as you go. But then they also have a pair of grasping raptorial limbs, which are the ones that are close to the mouth parts that you can see. And they use that to grab their prey uh, because these animals are top predators in their environments. And though they're not scary or dangerous to humans at all because they're tiny and they would never be able to bite us, uh, they are fierce predators in their world. Uh, like how tiny are they? They're about three millimetres in size usually. There are a few that are a bit bigger than that, but in general, they're quite small and their bodies are very soft. And so does it jump like a cricket or sort of crawl like a spider? Most of the shizomets don't jump, but there have been some anecdotal stories that sometimes they can jump. Um, And they're interesting because they're the only arachnid that can actually move backwards which is funny because other arachnids can only move forwards, which is seems like a bit of a random thing, right? Um, but they're actually very good at manoeuvring around in their habitat, considering that they don't have eyes and they're just using their senses and their legs to find their way around. Do you think that that ability to move backwards has been developed in response to the cramped environment they're in? 
I don't think so because we also have schizomids that live on the surface. So they would have had this ability before they went down into um, subterranean habitats. But it, maybe it's just a, a device for being... Um, they, they would live in small spaces under rocks and in leaf litter, so maybe it just makes their body more manoeuvrable. They, they're quite quick when they're moving. Oh, really? So, so a bit hard to catch then? They can be, yes. <laughs> we have had one accidentally escape when we were trying to photograph it. <laughs> um, so, yes, what they, they move in a very interesting way because they mostly stay very still. And I think this is because they tend to be sort of am ambush predators. So they stay still, they wait, and then suddenly they'll have a burst of energy and they'll just race forward or back. Um, so you can get lulled into thinking, oh, look, they're sitting nice and still. It'll be easy to get a photograph. And then suddenly they'll just take off in a direction you don't expect. So <laughs> they're, they're quite fun to watch, actually. So in Australia, interestingly, in, in Western Australia particularly, they, these animals are most diverse in subterranean habitats. So throughout the Pilbara region particularly, there are a lot of them. And some of them live in caves, but others live in um, geological layers that have spaces. So particularly things like limestone and um, iron ore bearing geology layers. So wherever there's little spaces that they can move around in, that's where we tend to find them. But on the surface, some of the species that we've seen over in Queensland and New South Wales, they're in quite wet forests in the leaf litter. And there are also a few um, cave species over on the east coast. But it's these underground sprickets that we're talking about today. These are found in crevices and caves between two and five metres underground. So some of them are um, quite a few metres underground. We often can't access these areas uh, directly. Um, sometimes you can if there's a cave opening and you can get down into it. But in many of them, the only way to really access the habitat is through a borehole that's drilled into the ground. And then how do you encourage a spricket to come up a borehole? <laughs> 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 well, the funny thing is we have to set a little trap for them. So you place a, a trap in, into the bore and you put leaf litter in there and then you leave it down for a few weeks. And um, over time, they'll see this as a nice new habitat to go and live in, especially if the things that they eat start living in there. So after a few weeks, you pull the trap back up and hopefully, if you're lucky, you'll find some of these shizomids in there. How do they survive? Because what, what do they eat? Whatever they can find, really. And down there, it tends to be anything that's smaller than them. And so there are lots of crustaceans down there, small ones called isopods, which generally people know as slaters. Um, so they'd be a kind of slater down there. Um, also springtails and mites. So pretty much anything smaller than them is fair game. So are they living in these these sort of rock formations and things, are they in an enclosed environment or are they able to disperse? Well, this is the tricky part. We see the, the underground that they're in is a bit like a labyrinth. So there's just lots of different sized spaces and they're moving through this strange habitat. And we don't really know if they, if they move around a lot or they stay in one area for most of the time. Um, they're, they're small, so we know that they don't disperse very far. 
and we have many different species. So it seems like they, they aren't very good at dispersing. So that's interesting. If they're not very good at dispersing, does that mean then that each cave system and, and even neighbouring caves might have a completely different suite of species? Yes, that is exactly it. And that's one of the things that makes them very interesting because there are lots of different species, but they're very much tied to a very small habitat, a small area. So they're called short-range endemics, which means they have a very narrow habitat that they can live in. Can you give me a scale? It's hard to say, but it could just be a few kilometres. There are some species that we only know from a single cave. So it's potentially true that a spricket, this tiny arachnid, can live out its entire life in a very small crevice of rock, thousands of its own body length underground, never emerging into the light. Yes, that's right. And one of the things that's characteristic of subterranean environments is that they have very low nutrient inputs, which means that the animals are very usually very long-lived and they grow very slowly. They have long, slow life cycles. So everything is sort of in a, a slowed-down version of life. So do we know anything about their behaviours? Like, are they social? Well, we don't think they're social. Um, because the, there's a low nutrients, it's likely that they have quite small population sizes, otherwise they wouldn't survive because there'd be too much competition. But we do know that they have some interesting behaviours, like the females, once they've um, mated, they will dig a little brood chamber and they'll um, bury their eggs in there and then they will carry them around on their back for a short time until they're big enough to leave. But there are also incidences of cannibalism, <laughs> So it is a low-energy environment, so sometimes if, if that's all that's there, they might eat their, their, their young. But another interesting thing that they do is when they mate, uh, the male has a very unusually shaped tail that looks different to the female's one, and the female will actually grab onto the male's tail with her mouth parts, and then he'll lead her in a sort of a dance, which is quite a funny thing. And so... We think that the way that the females are recognising that the male is the right species is by possibly by the shape of the tail and also probably from some kind of chemical pheromones that allow them to recognise each other. The male tails are really something, each shaped like a different puzzle piece, like a calling card for their species. It's quite surprising how much it can vary. So I've seen some that look almost like a donut. I've seen some that look like a spear or a triangle. Um, some of them have almost like wings because they're flattened on the side. Um, it's really quite amazing. We don't know exactly why it's so different, but it does mean that the tails can often be a good way to recognise different species. And where there is a male outie, there's often a female with a corresponding innie if you get what I mean. It hasn't been tested extensively, but there has been one paper that showed that the female's mouth parts... Mouth parts? um, ..really matched well with where the grooves on the male's tail fitted, so almost like a lock and key 
you know, fitting in so that he could lead her around to where the spermatophore is, which is a little sperm packet that she'll pick up. Presumably that's why they're doing this dance, so that they find the right, the mate of the right species, and then they, you know, do their little romantic dance. Matching mouths to butts and dropping off sperm packets and discos in the darkness. What else could possibly be going on under the surface of the earth? It turns out a lot. Yes, because people tend to think, oh, there's nothing under the ground. Or they might think they're only in caves. But, yeah, there's all this activity happening below. It's really amazing. And next week on Off Track, we'll hear more from our two intrepid underworld explorers, Kim Abrams and Perry Beasley-Hall, as we go even deeper underground. So bring the shovel and the headlamp and meet me and Jones here at the same time next time. That's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.